0: Welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. And this week we are talking to Rich Goldberg. He is a senior advisor at the Foundation for Defense of Democracy, worked on Capitol Hill, the U.S. National Security Council under President Trump, and the governor of Illinois' chief of staff. He is also a Naval Reserve Intelligence officer, but perhaps most importantly, has an incredible piece on Iran on the Dispatch website, From Maximum Pressure to Maximum Deference. Let's dive right in. Rich, thank you so much for joining us. I want to read just a a section of your piece. The president must face this unpleasant truth. Iran has vastly expanded its illicit nuclear activities on his watch. His policies of maximum deference, not Trump's policies of maximum pressure, have allowed this. Can we back up a little and just talk about where we are with Iran and what it means to have maximum pressure or maximum deference?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me on. So, the Trump administration adopted the so called maximum pressure campaign, which was the idea that the president would take the United States out of the Iran nuclear deal and restore the policy that had existed prior to that deal. We go back to 2013 and before that, when it was pretty almost unanimous bipartisan consensus in Washington that we should continue to impose this maximum pressure of sanctions, ratcheting up the economic pressure on the Islamic Republic of Iran, the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism, until they complied with international norms of conduct. Uh, They stopped enriching uranium and threatening that they might uh, acquire nuclear weapons in the future to fulfill their stated visions of destroying, wiping Israel off the map, uh, destroying America, destroying other U.S. allies, that they would stop sponsoring terrorism, that they would stop taking American citizens hostage, that they would stop starting and fomenting wars uh, throughout the Middle East. We see their proxies in Yemen. We see their proxies in Syria and in Lebanon and in Iraq. And so the idea here was uh, the Iran nuclear deal had sort of reversed that common consensus under the Obama administration. The idea of the nuclear deal was, the theory from the Obama administration was, We don't think we can ever get Iran to stop sponsoring terrorism, we can't stop them developing their missiles, we can't stop them fomenting wars in the Middle East, but maybe we can pay them enough money to at least temporarily pause their nuclear advances, which we view as the most serious of all their threats to the United States and to national security. And that's what the deal was, in fact. It was this temporary set of limits where Iran would temporarily self-constrain itself, No actual restrictions, just saying we won't do certain things in our nuclear program for a certain number of years. And in exchange, the United States would pour money into the coffers of the regime by lifting sanctions, by allowing Iran to repatriate money from around the world that had been trapped under U.S. sanctions, uh, to trade, to export its oil, uh, to export other goods as well, to try to attract foreign direct investment. And of course, underlying this theory is uh, some that hold an ideology that you can still moderate this regime, that you can somehow reform this regime by bringing it closer to the United States, bringing it closer to the West through trade and and introducing capitalism to the markets. The, The fundamental mistake, of course, was that this regime pocketed the cash and took it to fuel all of its other malign activities, knowing that there were these sunset clocks, these expiration dates to the deal. So what if I have to slow down my enrichment for a few years, not build the advanced centrifuge for a while? I can still advance my missile program. I can take the cash to advance uh, my positions throughout the Middle East strategically, take uh, take positions of strength, the so-called Shia arc from Yemen all the way to the Mediterranean and Lebanon. Uh, And then at some point, I'll legitimately, under the deal, start enriching uranium more and have my clear pathways to nuclear weapons in the future and have everything I want the Trump administration said, this is crazy. Uh, We're completely tied, handcuffed to use any sort of economic coercion tools to stop all these other malign activities with this countdown clock to when Iran gets to do all these nuclear uh, misconduct, all these illicit activities anyways. So what is the point of this deal? It's a crazy deal. And that was the thesis of those who wanted the president to pull out, which he did. And then he reimposed the US sanctions that had existed prior to the deal but then started layering on more and more and more in a so-called maximum pressure. And it wasn't just to get Iran to stop its nuclear program. It was to say, here is the list of basic elements of conduct that we expect from a normal country. You don't sponsor terrorism. You don't put your forces to foment civil wars in other countries. Uh, you don't take Americans hostage. You don't build nuclear-capable missiles. And, of course, you don't have a list of nuclear activities that you haven't even told us about. That's the maximum pressure campaign. What were the results of it? Obviously, we saw escalation over the last two years. And that's what Democrats and those who support uh, the uh, JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, as we call it, would point to and tell you. Rob Malley, President Joe Biden's special envoy for Iran, has made a lot of media appearances the last couple of weeks. And he says, the reason we're in the position we are today is because of the maximum pressure campaign. And it was easy to say that in 2019, 2020, because we did see Iran try to escalate. They did start having attacks against tankers in the Gulf. They did start attacking U.S. forces in Iraq. Uh, They were expanding their nuclear program, enriching more and more low-enriched uranium uh, at higher levels than they were allowed under the nuclear deal, obviously knowing at some point they would have been allowed to do it anyways, but they were speeding up the clock to try to create pressure. The difference, of course, was that these were tactics to try to create political pressure in Washington to stop the maximum pressure campaign. This was trying to say, oh, it's not working, give the opponents of Donald Trump some some talking points to say, look, things are getting worse, lift the sanctions, go back to the deal so that Iran can go back to getting everything at once. But what we see in the international monetary fund data that came out in the spring was that at the end of 2020, Iran had gone from $122 billion. Of accessible foreign exchange reserves in 2017, before Donald Trump left the Iran nuclear deal, to just $4 billion. $4 billion left at the end of 2020 of accessible foreign exchange reserves. It's unbelievable. And so that's when the shift happened though, right? At that moment, right when Iran is sort of at that tipping point, where maybe the thesis of the maximum pressure campaign could have been proven out. That the regime would have been forced to choose between uh, managing and overseeing a complete economic collapse, versus simply capitulating to basic, normal demands of the international community and negotiating on U.S. terms uh, over the range of malign activities, uh, or um, would you know would would they go forward without that pressure and be able to say, okay, well, if the pressure has lifted? Um, why do we have to negotiate? What do we, we have the cash back. And that's what happened as, as Joe Biden became president. They opposed the maximum pressure campaign during the campaign. They said very clearly uh, as a candidate for president, Joe Biden wrote an op-ed in CNN saying, I intend to go back to the nuclear deal. It will be my top priority. We saw statements and interviews that he gave to the New York Times about his intent to go back to that deal and lift sanctions. And he appointed his envoy, Rob Malley, to go to Vienna and start indirect talks with Iran to negotiate that return, offer the regime sanctions relief, and see what it would take to to get back to the deal. The results of what I call the maximum deference campaign, right? That's the shift from maximum pressure under Trump to maximum deference under Biden, are now in. And what we've seen is continued escalation on all fronts, way beyond what we saw under the Trump administration. When we were talking about the threat of Iran's expanded enrichment during the Trump administration in response to maximum pressure, we were still looking at low enriched uranium production. In January, the regime announced it was going to 20%, which is highly enriched uranium, which is more dangerous because it brings them closer to have a stockpile of higher enriched uranium that could be further enriched to a weapons grade uranium, which is 90% uranium which means the timeline for a nuclear breakout is shortened. And for years, that 20% marker was a red line for the international community. We remember Benjamin Netanyahu even going to the UN General Assembly and having that picture, that cartoonish picture of a bomb with a line. And for many, many years, the regime never really crossed it. They came right up to the point of 20%, but they never crossed it because they knew that was a red line for the international community. They came to the line they crossed the line and nothing happened nothing happened our european allies actually went to the international atomic energy agency in march at their uh, quarterly board meeting and said we need to do something we have to show force we have to show that we're serious that we might abandon this nuclear deal that we might reimpose sanctions ourselves because 20 percent is scaring us this is our red line and joe biden pulled them back the biden administration said no we're in the middle of trying to get back to the Iran deal. You can't provoke them. Can't provoke them. No resolutions at the IAEA. Maximum deference. And so what did the regime do on its nuclear front? It escalated. It went to 60% enrichment, which is where they're at today. It's crazy. We, we had years of 20% being the red line, and now they're at 60%, and the response from the Biden administration and the international community is nothing. We went through another board meeting of the IAEA, no resolution. We have one coming up in September. No word if there will be one then. That's on the nuclear front. On the uh, terrorism front, we've now seen over the last several weeks uh, the attacks in the Gulf picking back up. Now, some of this is a little bit of what you would call a tit-for-tat with Israel. There are uh, sort of clandestine operations that the, Israeli, the Israelis are pulling off both inside of Iran and in Syria uh, with, some, with some airstrikes. And the Iranians are looking for ways to, to strike back. And so they, they are targeting Israeli-connected vessels uh, that are transiting the Gulf. Uh, but they're also deciding to attack other vessels as well that have connections to U.S. allies like Great Britain. They're sending a message They're saying that they feel that they can threaten the international community and not have anything done to them. No sanctions coming back. In fact, the position of the White House, every single time there is one of these provocations, whether it's an attack on U.S. forces in Iraq, an attack on a tanker in the Gulf, is to say, we condemn this and we remain committed to going back to the JCPOA. Which is to say to the regime, if you're the supreme leader who's just authorized an attack on the United States, oh, remember, there was also a plot to kidnap an American journalist out of New York City with fast speed boats going to the port and, and nabbing her and grabbing her and, and taking her down to Venezuela by boat and then flying her to her. I mean, it was like out of a movie. And this happened. This is a terrorist plot on US soil. And the response of the White House was, we remain committed to going back to the JCPOA.
2: And the Iranians, say, It's important to note, yeah. sorry, just to jump in. It's important to note the Iranian plotters have been indicted by the Justice Department. This is not like a theoretical plot or we, we think they might have been doing this. Like there is an indictment. Yeah. Southern District New York put out this lengthy press release, big press conference. Uh, I've been
1: told from several sources, the White House tried to stop DOJ from making a public announcement. They did not want this out there this time. It contradicts maximum deference. But interestingly, if you look at the actions that have been in any way provocative against Iran over the last six months, they usually come from DOJ actions. This, this indictment is an example. Uh, we saw uh, DOJ action to remove uh, websites that the Iranians owned. Um, you don't see action out of the Treasury Department. Actually, the opposite. So far, not only have we not enforced any of the economic sanctions that were in place as of January 20th, right? With, we see Chinese imports of Iranian oil skyrocketing, uh, other signals that Iran's getting access to cash. The Treasury Department actually has loosened its restrictions on the frozen money that Iran has around the world. State Department issued a waiver just a couple weeks ago up to Capitol Hill to allow Iran to use its oil revenues that are sitting in these foreign bank accounts to pay off its foreign debt, right? Relieving its balance of payments crisis even further. So that's what maximum deference is in contrast to maximum pressure. And my point is, you can't go on television anymore six months into your administration having implemented a maximum deference campaign and say the reason why Iran's at 60% enrichment, the reason why tankers are being attacked in the Gulf, the reason why Americans are being attacked in Iraq is because of Donald Trump's maximum pressure campaign. Now, that may have worked on January 21st. It doesn't work on August 7th august 8th september 11th october this is your administration now it's your policies you own it uh and i think the president's team needs to come to that realization and what better time than with the inauguration of iran's new president select the mass murder the hanging judge of Tehran,
2: ibrahim raisi let me let me um ask a, i want to ask a question about um the history here and i want to um try to get you to give us an understanding of why they're doing what they're doing. What's interesting to me in reading your, your excellent piece this morning uh, on our website, but also following this closely for not just the past six months, but for the, you know, for the back through the Obama administration is this deliberate effort to decouple uh, Iranian regime behavior, broadly understood, and it's nuclear program and the Obama administration was quite open about this. That's what they were doing They they were saying we are taking everything we know about the nature of the regime the terrorism uh, <clears throat> the developing weapons the attacks on Interests in the region the the fomenting civil wars elsewhere. We have decided to take all of that and set it aside Because we think this nuclear deal is so important that struck me at the time as you know, unwise and, and totally unrealistic. I mean, how do you, how do you sit down at a negotiating table with out taking into account the nature of the, the person on the other side or the, or the entities on the other side? And I guess <clears throat> I, um, my first question is, is that are we just seeing in, in the Biden administration's maximum deference campaign, a continuation of that? I mean, there seems to be this clear decoupling ongoing Um, and then the second question is a little different if the, why, I mean, this is not, this would not be the policy I would implement if I were president of the United States, but assuming that the Biden administration isn't doing this just to, you know, strengthen the Iranian regime, what did they, what's the most charitable understanding of what they think they're doing? What is Rob O'Malley thinking as he makes these these arguments on behalf of Biden administration policies. So, so I think there are three
1: different camps and three ways of looking at the policy, both under Obama and, and now under Biden. And I, I think the policies are, are, are very similar. Uh, the most charitable view is I had a conversation back during the Iran deal negotiations when the Obama administration was vigorously opposing a bipartisan bill from Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey, Democrat, Republican, Senator Mark Kirk, who I used to work for. And our bill was to threaten prospective sanctions should these talks not lead to a good deal, to set some basic minimum standards of what a good deal on the nuclear front and missile front should look like and what we would be willing to lift And if they couldn't reach those minimum standards, then all the sanctions that they had temporarily relieved under that interim nuclear deal back in 2013 would come back, and then some. And the White House saw this as just this potent threat to them. They went all in, called called all the senators warmongers. Remember Huffington Post with 16 saboteurs, the 16 Democrats who were co-sponsoring legislation. This was a big knockdown drag-out fight. This was it. The actual fight over the Iran nuclear deal happened in early 2014. Didn't happen in 2015 as most people in Congress think. It was over this bill. And I I called one person who had been in the uh, Obama administration first term and was viewed as you could call them a hawk, as you, it's a relative term when you're in the Obama administration. Let's, let's, let's say it's the Obama administration's hawk. And he had come out against our bill in favor of the White House's position. And I said, why, why are you against this bill? Like, this is going to strengthen diplomacy. This is going to help, you know, Ambassador Wendy Sherman and others who are actually there at the table say, Listen, we would love to do this deal, but Congress is tying our hands. You have to give us more, right? That's just obvious. Good cop, bad cop. He said, "Well, my view is is that the supreme leader might die in a few years. And he'll probably die within the time frame of the first sunset on the nuclear program under the deal. And so if we can at least buy ourselves some time, kick the can down the road, throw some money at them to stop the enrichment so we don't have an actual nuclear Iran on our watch and then see if the supreme leader dies, it will have been worth it." Uh, that's interesting perspective.
2: Uh, I don't know. I don't. Yeah, know seven, so seven years. Seven years later, he's right, eighty-two years old. He's <laughs> he's alive and kicking. And and you know, certainly, I think if you look at the the, the newly sworn in president, um, it is an extension of the supreme leader's power. I mean, he is fully. Oh, absolutely. Fully. And,
1: and, and we may actually be seeing the transition starting here. That, you know, this, this, this may be the transition. This may be the next Supreme Leader who's now, who's now president. You know, we, obviously, we've had for now a decade the reports that the Supreme Leader is about to die uh, of cancer. It's sort of like this great every six-month report where everybody's like, oh, you know, the Supreme Leader might die, so maybe we should do something different here. Um, but now it actually could happen, though. We've said that 10 years in a row. The other So that's a charitable view. The pragmatic view is the President of the United States wants to do a lot of things, and this is an annoyance, and this is not what he wants to deal with. And if you can pay off the Iranians and just pay the racket and make the crisis go away for now, even though, yes, you're going to have terrorism, you're going to have missiles and all the bad things that we know about, yeah, we can manage those things. We've managed them for years. Yeah, they're getting worse and worse, but we'll still manage them. We can't manage a nuclear weapon, so... Uh, just just get this off the table because I want to deal with China. I want to deal with Russia. I want to do you know, COVID. I want to do other things. Like, Why is this taking up my time during the day? Just make it go away for now. We'll deal with it later. That, That's another view. That could be the view of actually Joe Biden uh, in this case. And then there are people who are just ideologically motivated that they truly believe that it is possible to make Iran a strategic partner in the region as opposed to an enemy. And that the JCPOA is a strategic realignment of the region in that fashion. That they're not truly state sponsors of terrorism. We just call them that for political reasons. Just like Hezbollah is not really a terrorist organization. Hamas is not really. These are political organizations that have been at war with our, our allies. And so we've adopted them as enemies as well. Right. This is the view of Rob Malley. That is the ideology. And he's written about it. He's talked about it. This is not me just throwing things at him. You know, this is his ideology. Um, at some point, though, if you're Jake Sullivan, right, who's in that more centrist camp. The president's national security advisor. The president's national security advisor, who recognizes that he does want to have the ability to push back on Iranian terrorism and missile development and other things, even if you're in some sort of a nuclear arrangement. And he does recognize the deficiencies of the JCPOA that tied our hands, right? This decoupling you're talking about, which was a strategic failure. uh, Because not only did you not stop the nuclear program long-term, you empowered all the other malign activities while you lifted sanctions. I think Jake Sullivan realizes that. And that's where this whole thesis that we want to negotiate a longer, stronger deal. Uh, We want to address all these deficiencies. The Biden administration, the difference between the Biden administration and Obama administration is that they recognize publicly that the JCPOA was flawed going into their administration. You know, by saying we need a longer, stronger deal, they're saying this is not a great deal. Now, when you start looking at what the Obama administration did during the decoupling, they tried to rhetorically say, we will still be able to impose sanctions for non-nuclear reasons, right? We're lifting nuclear sanctions only. That was the big sort of sell to Congress. These are nuclear sanctions. We reserve the right to impose terrorism, missile, and human rights sanctions, no matter no matter when during the Iran nuclear deal. And so we lifted all these sanctions that most of them had nebulous reasons for sanctions. A lot of them were actually for the nuclear program or proliferation. Some of them Congress had just done without saying why. It's like, you know, we Iran does a lot of bad things, so we're from the Congress going to impose more sanctions for all those bad things, but it allows the the Obama administration to say, well, these are all nuclear sanctions. They happened under Ahmadinejad, they happened because of the nuclear program threats advancing, not because of all the other reasons. That sort of deception is gone at this point. You can't create that artifice during the Biden administration. And the reason for that is, during the Trump administration, the Treasury Department went through, based on a congressional mandate from a law passed in 2017, went through all the banks and entities in Iran that support the Revolutionary Guard Corps, that support terrorism. And they specifically imposed terrorism sanctions on those banks. The Central Bank of Iran, the National Iranian Oil Company, its tanker company, the petrochemical, you know, a couple hundred entities, companies, banks, are subject today, not for nuclear sanctions, not for nebulous sanctions, specifically because of financing terrorism. And the administration acknowledges all those banks still are committing those acts for which they are subject to terrorism sanctions. But Rob Malley has gone in Vienna in these indirect talks and said we will lift all of the sanctions promised under JCPOA, even if they are currently tied to terrorism. And so now that sort of, you know, superficial promise of we will always still be able to push back on terrorism and missiles and human rights is gone. Because they're saying, we will give you everything. We will directly subsidize the IRGC. And we will have the list of banks and entities, if they lift those sanctions, to say, well, these were all tied to terrorism and IRGC. They still are, which means if we lift those sanctions, we are proactively helping them fund terrorism in the IRGC. And that is a little bit ludicrous from a national security perspective.
0: Can. Uh, th- This is an overly simplistic question in some ways, but I look at Cuba and North Korea, countries where we have long imposed sanctions across administrations. Neither one of those countries have we seen the results that we wanted. Uh, We have tried invading countries to change their governments. That tends to not work out as well as we would like it to, (laughs) topic for other podcasts that we've done in the past. Uh, At the same time i think i can point to a few countries where internal pressure where external pressure has been removed where there's not that sense of a shared enemy has actually led to changes and we're seeing you know of course we've uh, seen the arab spring in the past and we can you know you can discuss of course whether that had the results that we thought it would have uh but we've seen protests in iran over water shortages um Unrest about the election that wasn't really an election. So I guess my question is, can you actually point to an example where maximum pressure has gotten the results we've wanted in the end? And is perhaps that more of the idea here?
1: Yeah, the classic example is Soviet Union. And we won the Cold War through Reagan's strategy of victory by applying economic pressure wherever we could, political warfare, uh, at all, all points, military deterrence, and as you're alluding to, dedicated support for the people, uh, and looking for ways to support them in an internal uh, pressure uh, on the regime until that regime fell, and that was sustained over several several years. Um, the, the question's always been for Iran, and I take your point on Cuba and North Korea. You have to look at the country and its susceptibility to international sanctions. Uh, if the if the regime has been able to either inoculate itself from sanctions by being a hermit kingdom, where it's, it's basically self-reliant except for one actor in China, and you're really just relying on China. And by the way, we've seen when the Chinese actually turn the screws, suddenly sanctions do work on North Korea. When China decides to ease the pressure, they don't work. Um, that's another story. But in the case of Iran... You do have a regime that has, because of its dependence on oil exports and other uh, energy-related exports, uh, become very dependent over time on its international trade. Uh, And it wants to trade. The regime wants to be accepted in Europe. They want to be able to do business around the world. Um, And so there is both a political isolation that they suffer via sanctions that they don't like, uh, and... Uh, the actual economic consequences of having to go into their reserves with the full knowledge that they uh, rule over a people who who do not like the regime and do like the West, do like the United States. And by and large, don't blame the economic woes in the country on U.S. sanctions. Blame them on mismanagement, corruption, and a bankrupt ideology of the Islamic Revolution. And so we do need to do a lot more to actually help the people of Iran. Um, that was missing in my view, a great deal during the Trump administration. Um, human rights was not one of the
2: conditions of the maximum pressure campaign. Can you give us some specific in in your mind? What specifically, I mean, certainly we saw during the Obama administration, the green revolution, you look back at, at, you know, the, the rhetoric coming out of the white house was, I mean, it was missing for a long time. Then when it came, it was late and it was weak. Uh, in supporting these the the uprising against the regime. Um, as you say, the Trump administration certainly didn't make that a, a priority. What specific kinds of things could the U.S. government do to help the Iranian people who want to get out from under the regime?
1: Well, well here's a great example. Um, some of my colleagues at FDD have talked about this in the past. Uh, we, we could work uh, through international organizations like the ILO, the International Labor Organization or others, to develop a strike fund uh, for Iranian workers and activists uh, who want to go out uh, on strike uh, to protest uh, working conditions, living conditions, wages, uh, as we've seen several unions do over the past couple of years. What happens though is that uh, their livelihoods are threatened, uh, the leaders get thrown in jail, people are afraid, they go back home, and nothing really happens after a few days of those protests. Uh, If there was a way for them to access funds for their families to be able to stay on strike, you would basically throw the wrench, so to speak, into the workings uh, of of the economy there. Um, There are other ways to train people, uh, to bring uh, resources to people, to bring secure communications to people. Uh, so that people can talk to each other without fear of censorship, without fear of somebody listening in. The regime has done an incredible job of being able to shut down the internet at times for days. Uh, we need a way to work around that. We need to be able to provide internet into the country to people when they need it. When a regime And then, by the way, that's not just in Iran. That's in other repressive regimes that have figured out how to just shut down the internet uh, during times of crackdowns. If we are truly if the, if Joe Biden truly believes what he says about human rights and democracy promotion, et cetera, that is a technological solution we should be working with the private sector on to figure out how to how to get around. Uh, how do you deliver internet uh, to inside these regimes at times of blackouts? Um but you know there's like other apps like telegram, et cetera, that are used very popular inside there. Sometimes the regime penetrates them. How do you continue to you know give confidence using that? Our our broadcasting services, I think, are, you know, very. In the past, we need to have a whole overhaul of how we think about U.S. broadcasting to speak to the Iranian people, to have our messaging. What are they seeing of the West? How can we help them? Um, and then there is the the rhetorical support that does matter um, of going out and having not just the president, but uh, all different leaders of government plus members of Congress. Speak the names of dissidents um, the the way we we did during during the Soviet Jewry movement. You know, adopting dissidents, adopting refuseniks, um, really trying to educate the international community uh, about what's going on inside uh, of Iran. And it's difficult, in my opinion, to succeed in that when, on the one hand, you put out a press release saying uh, we stand with the people who are in the streets right now on the water pr- protest, et cetera, and uh, we're seeing reports of the regime cracking down and we oppose that. Um, and at the same time, go to the White House podium and say, but we remain committed to giving you $100 billion. Right? There's, there's a little bit of disconnect there. Uh, and I think the Iranian people see that as well. Um, and so, yes, there's a lot more we can do concretely, financially, rhetorically, politically. Um, we should be holding them accountable inside every international organization for what they do. We should be isolating them, stigmatizing them on this issue, on human rights. I mean, this is one of the greatest human rights abusers in the world, period. And the fact that we don't have allies who are willing to say that every day, we need to work on that.
0: You mentioned that one of the ideas, perhaps, within the uh, Biden administration was that there are simply bigger fish to fry. Uh, I mean, China, Afghanistan, North Korea, uh, there's, there's plenty of fish, really, really bad fish fish in this sea right now. Uh, how should we think about Iran and what level of threat it is when I'm pretty sympathetic to the idea that I would rather focus the administration's time and energy on China, for instance?
1: Yeah, so it's a great question. And I, I think this is actually a key issue to, to hone in on. First and foremost, uh, I love the old uh, adage from Dennis Ross, Ambassador Dennis Ross, a uh, longtime um, peace envoy, negotiator, Middle East expert, worked uh, several administrations, Clinton administration, Obama administration. And he likes to say to presidents and secretaries, if you don't visit the Middle East, the Middle East will visit you. Um, that, that's one reason to remember that we need to get this right. And, and we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. This is true, by the way, for our speedy withdrawal from Afghanistan um, are signaling that we're moving quickly to an advisory role in Iraq. Um, the idea that the nine 11 generation is over. We, we face threats today from uh, Sunni terrorism, from Sunni ideology, from Shia terrorism and Shia ideology. Um, that's real. We need partners in the region. We need to push back. We can't allow Iran to take over the middle East. N- number two Even if you look at this from a great power competition perspective, China has its eye on Iran. Um, Iran is part of the Belt and Road Initiative. There is a reason why the two countries in the world that had some of the worst outbreaks very quickly early on in in COVID-19 was China, obviously, itself, and Iran. There are direct flights that were going on between Iran and China all the time. With Chinese workers uh, who were helping build mass transit uh, at the city of Qom, where some of the worst outbreaks started in Iran, the the there's a big 25 year uh, agreement that they announced uh, recently. It actually started back in 2015 at the beginning, 2016 at the beginning of the JCPOA. They've restarted it now with the prospect of sanctions relief, where China wants to dump tens of billions of dollars um, of foreign direct investment into. Iran in exchange for Iran's natural resources, just as it does uh, in other countries as well. You could see a port uh, access uh, in Iran, perhaps to China in the future, uh, the way that Russia has secured in Syria, which would be very strategic for them uh, as they look to expand uh, not just their Asia uh, power circle, but beyond. And so we also think about our allies and partners in the region who are looking at who are they going to line up with in the 21st century. If you abandoned the Sunni Arab allies that we have built since the Cold War, who are they going to turn to? They're going to turn to Russia. They're going to turn to China. They're already doing that in several cases. Now, I don't think those are very stable partners for them. I think that's a bad choice to think that China and Russia are going to be your savior when China and Russia are also the protector of Iran, your mortal enemy. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me if I was Mohammed bin Salman. But still, we even see the Israelis doing this. They hedge with the Russians. They hedge with, with the Chinese which is a problem for U.S. national security long-term and the U.S. as a relationship. So yes, do we need to get China right? Absolutely. I agree with the national security strategy under the Trump administration and believe that that is the greatest power competition challenge we face for the 21st century. But if you believe that it's a global strategic challenge, it is not just in East Asia. And so, you know, having a myopic view of that and having siloed policy is dangerous for a national security strategy. So even if, yes, you are looking at China, you're looking at Russia, China and Russia are in the Middle East. They are causing a lot of problems. And those will cause problems that cascade in the future. So from a U.S. national security perspective, just for our own national security and the national security of our allies in the region, from the Iran threat matrix, and also great power
2: competition... I think it's very important to get this right and focus on it. And and I would just just to add to that a little bit. I mean I, I think it is it's tempting to try to silo these problems and these policies, but I would point to Afghanistan and Iran and the role that Iran played in Afghanistan, and Pakistan and uh, basically allowing at the very least I would say allowing the pipeline that led to replenishment and strengthening of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, and Pakistan. Uh, to the great detriment of the United States i mean this we this this was something that the Obama administration acknowledged um, interestingly enough, and uh, you had a, a senior CIA official number two CIA official at the time talk about the key role that Iran was playing he, I think their language was the core pipeline uh that Iran was playing. To strengthen Al Qaeda in Afghanistan, Pakistan, so it's th- these these threats are not. I think it's tempting to to sometimes look at them as sort of whack-a-mole threats, and they pop up from their specific thing, and then you can knock them down. But it's often much more complicated, I think, than that. And can you just can you spend just a second and explain what you mean by China's uh, Belt and Road Initiative, and wh- what you mean when you say that Iran was part of that? Yeah,
1: yeah, I'll, I'll get to that. But I do, I do want to make this point one other as well. Um, Steve, you, you know that you know, better than most because you, you helped publish uh, some of those papers and the analysis of those papers that were declassified. Uh, I know Tom Jocelyn and others uh, work, you know, worked uh, very hard with you to, to, to get those out, to have that analysis. And at the end of the Trump administration, Secretary Pompeo gave a big speech in which he exposed further declassified evidence that Iran still is a safe haven for AQ facilitators today. Uh, on America's Most Wanted lists. Um, so, yes, uh, point taken. One other point I'll tell you is, it's not just over there, it's in our own backyard, right? It's the Western Hemisphere strategy that the Iranians have as well, and that Hezbollah has been uh, exploiting for many years now. You, this is not new, right? This strategy started years ago. We had when, actually when Bob Mueller was FBI director, he testified to Congress that Hezbollah uh, was, was trying to get across the southern border with the cartels, uh, we've now seen major escalation—not just their activities in the tri-border area, which have been well documented, but the growing presence in Venezuela, um, the growing presence and relationships in Cuba. Uh, there is a scheme going on in our own backyard that we need to be very watchful of. And so, if you're working on Western Hemisphere policy, Iran is there. You can't you can't disconnect it. The Belt and Road Initiative, um, a a long-standing now a long-term strategy by the Chinese Communist Party to expand their sphere of influence, first uh, economically, to allow for strategic expansion uh, throughout the world, uh, to have literally sort of a new Silk Road, a strategic Silk Road, uh, that can move uh, through Central Asia, you know, all the way to the Middle East and beyond, um, that uh, first has uh, a lot of money going in, uh, foreign investment. Um, we see this in Africa as well, um, with some sort of coercive economic terms so that the Chinese, uh, get certain infrastructure in return. Maybe it's ports, maybe it's transit, maybe it's whatever else is there. Um, maybe it's some sort of ridiculous terms on the bonds, uh, where they increase their leverage over the countries where they invest strategically. And they use that leverage as they sort of look at what their strategy will be geopolitically. If they need countries to vote with them at the UN, if they need countries to do certain things to oppose a U.S. policy, um, if they simply want uh, in the future uh, some sort of a port visit uh, or some other reason why they would need to have this country on their list, right? This is the Belt and Road Initiative. And Iran is on that list. They are investing money there. They were already building uh, during the JCPOA infrastructure projects throughout the country. Um, we see that they kept up a lot of the illicit oil imports, even under maximum pressure, to maintain that relationship uh, with Iran to say, listen, we can't put our state on enterprises at risk. We can't directly import oil from you because we'll be subject to U.S. sanctions. But we'll turn a blind eye to you know a couple hundred thousand barrels a day coming in into Western China and in exchange, we'll work out a secret ledger where we'll keep doing projects inside the country, so we're you know we're paying for the oil and it's all working out. and if sanctions get lifted, we'll go back in and we'll you know go uh go into high gear uh, on our on our whole plan. so that that's where I see uh, iran as as a possible step, not just economically for for China but strategically there's no reason why, over time, the Iranians couldn't allow the Chinese to have a naval naval port there or at least station you know uh, some naval vessels there. maybe it 's not an official port um, like like we've seen in syria at tardis uh, but this is something we need to be concerned about
0: all right. I have two important closing questions for you: one, what is the thing that y- you are looking for to determine whether the Biden administration will change their position in Iran? Is there some event that you think could trigger a change in policy? Uh, What will you be watching most closely in the next six months, let's say?
1: Well, the the number one change in policy we would probably start seeing is uh, in Vienna uh, at the International Atomic Energy Agency, not at the indirect talks. Uh, There's going to be a September board meeting of the IAEA. That would be an initial opportunity to see if there is a change in strategy uh, from the Biden administration. Um, If they decide to go forward with a resolution to censure Iran, not just for its expanding illicit uh, nuclear activities on the enrichment side, and the production of uranium metal that's been announced, but also for its continued non-cooperation with the IAEA into investigations into undeclared nuclear sites and materials, which by the way should be far more worrying to us than what we see them doing. It's what we don't see them doing. Um, that That will be test number one in my view. Number two will be, do they impose any new sanctions? Do they enforce any sanctions? They have not to date. There have been a couple of uh, people added to sanctions lists under different authorities, non-sanctions. Um, yeah, we, we talked about the seizing of websites, the indictment from DOJ. There has not been a significant economic sanctions enforcement action. Um, if that is taken, that will also be a signal to the regime that they're not going to stick with maximum deference. They're at least recalibrating to some measure of sanctions pressure to say, you know, you're, you're, the, the game is over. We've, our, our final offer is on the table. Uh, my ideal situation is that they would say, we don't believe the JCPOA can be salvaged at this point. Iran is too far ahead in its nuclear activities, in its nuclear learning and, and, and know-how. Their work on advanced centrifuges is already way past the sunset deadlines that aren't supposed to come for a couple more years. There's no way to put some of these genies back in the bottle. We don't know all we need to know about their nuclear program anyways because they're not cooperating with an investigation. And so we have decided with our allies to work on something else, a new strategy. And fundamentally, the question is, will Europe and the United States, under this administration, ever move to snap back the sanctions at the Security Council? Because all of this is very interesting, but for Iran, that Security Council resolution is everything. That's where the sunset provisions are enshrined. That's where the arms embargo fell off last October. And they're just patiently waiting to keep that resolution in place. The Trump administration attempted the snapback. It was, it was disputed by the other members of the Security Council. One of the first things the Biden administration did was send a letter to the Security Council saying, we no longer have the policy that recognizes snapback. We now fully affirm the current resolution, 2231, is still in place. We have not restored U.N. sanctions on Iran. That needs to change, right? The Brits, the French, the Germans, the so called E3, used to tell us if they break the JCPOA, we will snap back. Didn't happen. If they go to 20%, we will snap back. Didn't happen. If they restart work at the Fordow underground facility, we will snap back. We're at 60%. We're at uranium metal. We're at the heck with you. We're never going to tell you what these secret sites are. At some point, they have to actually snap back. And then you'll be able to start over with the regime and say, okay, here are the new terms.
0: All right. Now here is perhaps, uh, the, the biggest question, the hardest question of this podcast interview, rich, you are a deeply patriotic person. Uh, you, uh, you are in the Navy reserves. I assume that you are watching the Olympics, uh, in screaming USA, USA at your television every night as I am. Uh, here's my question to both you and Steve. Setting aside any aptitude you may have or lack of aptitude, which Olympic sport do you wish you could compete in? Like, do you think like, yeah, I want to do that?
1: Uh, beach volleyball. <laughs> Good did answer. You watch,
0: did you watch the women last night?
1: Of course I did. That's why it's on my oh mind. My but yeah, God. it's I just was, like 18 so wins
0: that it was so late. And I was like, no, we're going to go to bed. We're just going to miss it. And then I literally didn't get up off the couch.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was I, I couldn't I couldn't stop watching. It was great.
0: Uh, I mean, we had watched them from the beginning, like on some of those like satellite channels that you have to watch. Um, and like, so great for April Ross. Uh, also, really vindicating 39 years old, man, who knew that I could still play an Olympic sport for one more year?
1: <laughs> there you go.
0: I mean, that's the only thing that's been stopping me, obviously. My
1: dentist was, I, w- I went to the dentist and I was in the chair and he was talking about how he watches all like the morning stuff that's on when like everybody's working. Cause like yeah. he's, yeah, the TV in the office. So he's always seeing everything all throughout the day. He's like, D- have you seen this rock climbing event? Like these people are just like, like Spider Man, just like yeah. running
2: up these. I was like, no, I need to see this. What is this event? It is crazy. That it's very cool to watch. I would say, if, for me, the the answer is the same. Uh, no, I played, Steve, played, you don't I get have to, to pick
0: the sport that you actually played.
2: No. I played in college. I played Ugh. indoor six man volleyball in college and pretty competitive, oh. uh, pretty competitive beach uh, volleyball throughout and beyond college. So that that would be the obvious thing. I mean, probably my first choice, but this is a different Olympics. Would be hockey. I mean, I'd want to be on mm. the U.S. Olympic hockey mm. team. Would be about the greatest thing I can imagine. Do you want to be playing Russia? Is that, is that yes. like, it's yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. I want to relive yeah. the, the miracle on ice. I mean, it would be yeah. uh, fantastic.
0: So John McLaughlin style, you're all wrong. Nice. The correct answer was actually men's shot put because it looked so awesome. Mm. They were so into it. I think of all of the athletes I've seen in the last week and a half, they were the guys having the most fun and really like the most joyful that I've seen. Because I, look, I loved watching the women's volleyball. It was incredible. But I did, and maybe I was projecting, I did just have this sense that what, the, you know, you're sitting in that gold medal match, you've won the first set, you're now up 9-2 or whatever in the second set. Like, you just want that thing to be over, right? The last thing you want to do is keep playing those points because, like, it's right there.
1: Do you know how hot that sand was, by the way? I mean, that, yeah. like, it's, it's like one hundred and twenty degrees. degrees. Yeah, it's crazy.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, shot put, right? Like, they're big boys. They're having a good time. And they're just, you know, hurling some bowling balls around.
2: They're big I dudes. Know. I will tell you that. They're big dudes. I'll make a point. You know, they, they, there have been several broadcasts where they've made a lot about the the heat of the sand. And, and it's not nothing. But I will say, just having, you know, again, just having done this uh-huh. for, for, for summers a lot myself, you, you play volleyball on the beach. You're, the bottom of your feet is like leather. So you're not actually as sensitive to the heat and those things as a normal human being. You know, normal human being, you go to the Outer Banks or, you know, some beach in Florida and it's hot and you like. Ow! See the kids oh, no. skittering across right in front of you. For, for th- they would not be affected by any of this, given that this is the way that they're doing it. Not to say that it's, you know, at 130 degrees, that might be sort of a breaking point. Are we going to end the show hot. with like Kenny Loggins, by the way? Like, is there going to be like some Kenny Loggins going?
0: <laughs> All right. Well, Rich, thank you so much for joining us. Even if your Olympic take was, I don't know, a B plus at best, your Iranian... Uh, uh, commentary was a plus plus. Thanks for a having fellow, me. a fellow Wildcat. Go Northwestern. Go.
1: That's true.
2: That's true. Undergrad and masters.
0: <laughs> and Steve, we will welcome you into our Big Ten family as a as a cousin.
2: That's good. I'll I'll take it. I'm I may be sending my kids to see if they should go to Northwestern. Ooh, beautiful that campus. Lakeville.
0: Beautiful, just beautiful. All right. Thank you.